Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Trigger warning. This episode discusses addiction and alcohol and may not be suitable for all listeners. Should this show raise issues for you, please reach out to someone. In Australia, that may be done by calling 13 11 14 Lifeline. We live in a culture surrounded by reasons to drink alcohol, when we celebrate, when we're sad, or even just because it's Friday night. My guest, Sarah Rusbach, is a women's health and wellbeing coach, an accredited grey area drinking coach, and a keynote speaker sharing her journey to sobriety and impact of alcohol on mental health to global audiences. She's also the face behind purse-growing alcohol-free movement. After developing what she describes as a dysfunctional relationship with alcohol, Sarah made the decision to remove alcohol from her life in early 2019 and has never looked back. She now works with women across the globe, guiding them from feeling lost, stuck and out of control, something she fully understands herself, to a healthier and happier way of living. She's the host of a thriving global online community called the Women's Wellbeing Collective, which offers a safe space where women feel seen and understood. She meets her clients where they're at and her programs are designed for real life. She equips women with the tools they need to break the cycles of unhealthy habits and coping mechanisms. Her experience, knowledge and passion has transformed lives. Each client is uniquely supported on their journey one day, one event and one step at a time. Her story and her work may help any one of us who's looking to make some changes with our relationship with the bottle, so to speak. So welcome to the politics of everything, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Podcasting remotely can be challenging, but it doesn't have to be. Since day one of the politics of everything, I have relied on Zencaster's all-in-one solution to make the process quick and painless, the way it should be for those of us who just love great content and want to get our ideas out into the world. If you know me, I'm obsessed with quality in terms of my guests, my sound, and everything about my show has to be great the first time. I'm time poor. It's so easy to use Zencaster. I'm not tech savvy and you don't need to be either. There's nothing to download. Just click on the link and off we go. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience easy and with everything from local recording to automate post-productions now in their toolkit, you don't have to leave your browser to get that episode done and done fast. I have a special offer for you and I hopefully you can experience what I have with Zencaster. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use my VIP code, the politics of everything, all lowercase in one word, to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. How good is that? I want you to have the same easy experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story. Okay, young Sarah, what did you want to be as a kid and kind of what was your early study career journey like? So I wanted to be a journalist or a newsreader. I was constantly making up games in my bedroom, turning it into a news studio where I would interview my dolls and teddy bears for them to report back on the, uh, the day's <laughs> events. 
Um, were, were, they, so, were they good talent is my question. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I used to write, so I used to write all the time, the stories I used to come up with, Amber. And so um, I was a writer. I was incredibly creative, not in a like a drawing way. For me, it was words, it was writing, it was reading. And I just saw myself in some way using that in my career. So for me, like interviewing, journalism, all of that felt like it would be the natural path to go down and it's funny because I was reflecting on that the other day and I think more than anything right now I'm the closest I've ever been to what those childhood dreams were which is ironic that when you actually remove the alcohol and make these changes in your life you go back to what you wanted to do when you were younger. Absolutely. So this term grey drinking is something which I feel like sort of come to the fore in the past couple of years more than ever. It's kind of always been very binary. You're an alcoholic or you're not kind of thing. How do you define grey drinking and how do you know if there's something that affects you in that space? Because I think for people it could be very arbitrary. Like for some people that could be drinking every day. Other people it could be, you know, having the big binge on the weekend. What do you define as that grey drinking space? So the way I think of it, Amber, is, is a scale of one to ten. One being someone who doesn't drink or has a glass of champagne at a wedding to toast, like, toast the bride and groom and then that's it. They don't think about alcohol any other time. It just doesn't feature in their life. And 10 is the stereotypical alcoholic. And I hate using that term because, as you say, it's so binary. If people don't identify as being an alcoholic, then they go, oh, well, I don't have a problem then because we associate alcoholics as homeless, as someone that wakes up with shaking, trembling hands that needs to reach for the bottle before they even have breakfast. And that's not necessarily what I'm talking about here. But when I say 10 out of 10 on that scale, I mean someone who has physical dependence on alcohol and they could die from the withdrawal symptoms and so they need medical support to come off it because it's really important to note here that alcohol is one of only three substances that the human body can actually die from withdrawal after after developing such a strong dependence so we've got a one and a ten both of which are very extreme and not that common so gray area drinking i think of as being about a four to an eight on that scale So we haven't got to the point, perhaps, that we are reaching for a drink every single morning. We haven't got to the point where we can't function without alcohol. But a few of the warning signs might be the first thing I do when I get home from work after a really stressful day, I've got nothing else in my toolkit other than reaching for alcohol. I notice that I always end up drinking more than I intend to. I always say, I'm going to have one or two, and then I always finish the bottle or open the second. I make rules around my drinking. And so I'm only allowed to drink on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I'm only allowed to drink after five o'clock. I'm not allowed to drink on my own at home. Like people who don't have a problem with drinking don't have rules around their drinking. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think some people think that's being healthy in a way or balanced or, you know, something in between. And I think for some people that would be the case, but it's if you're making these rules, they take up a lot of headspace for you and then you're often finding reasons that you can justify breaking them. Like I lived with constant rules around my drinking, but I constantly found a reason to justify why just today it was okay to have a drink before five o'clock or just today it was okay because it had been a really hard day. So I could just have a drink on my own at home or whatever the reason was. So we're classically making these rules, but then often breaking them. And the other signs might be that we have started to notice that the impact of alcohol is just becoming more and more negative. 
we're starting to notice the physical impact might be it's really impacting our sleep. We're noticing terrible anxiety the next day. We notice that we're feeling lethargic. We've lost that spark. We're feeling less motivated. We're starting to look forward more and more to the next time that we're having a drink. So we, we notice all of these things and yet we're still struggling to stop. So I have so many clients that will wake up in the morning and go, right, that's it. I'm not drinking again. I can't believe I drank last night. I'm not going to drink tonight. That's it. I'm going to do seven days off and just have a bit of a break. And then by five o'clock, they're pouring a drink again. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us briefly your story of alcohol use. And I guess, was there a particular catalyst that made you stop drinking? Because like a lot of people who maybe are dependent on alcohol, it probably isn't for them a slow build decision. It's probably something maybe happens that's catastrophic, but maybe not always. I'd be curious to know what was your tipping point. Yeah, and, and, I'll, and I'll come to that because I think it's really important to note here that most grey area drinkers don't have a rock bottom. They don't yeah. have that, It's not waking you know? up in the street not knowing, yeah. you know, where you are. Like that's and what people picture, I think. Totally. And that's the thing about grey area drinking. It's subtle. It's mostly celebrated. Most people will be like, oh, you're not that bad. Oh, you don't need to stop. Like it, it, it's very different to that dependent on alcohol. So for me, I grew up in the north of England. I grew up in a house where alcohol was very present. My dad, looking back, I can see now as a functioning alcoholic. My parents were very social. They had lots of dinner parties. So young Sarah, all she ever saw was raucous laughter coming from the dining room with lots of like adults there having brilliant dinner parties, lots of fun, and alcohol was flowing. So from such a young age, that impression on me was, ah, that's what you do when you grow up. You you drink alcohol to have a good time. Like I don't recall ever seeing my parents socialize without alcohol. But there was never anything negative about it it was just like that was the the two and two that I put together as a young girl by the time I was 14 I'd been to several different schools my dad had moved around quite a lot with work and that meant that I'd I'd constantly had to fit in I'd constantly been the new girl and then at 14 we started drinking which was very standard back in those days we used to fill up soda stream bottles with whatever we could find in our parents drinks cabinet mix a terrible concoction of like chinzano and rum and oh it usually and tastes martini. terrible i'm oh, actually God. were you even saying that i'm remembering those parties when i was about 14 15 and that first take a taste of alcohol i was like thinking why do people do this this is yeah. horrendous yeah yeah you top it up with like a little bit of coca-cola and then a bit of midori yeah. <laughs> you know oh like all the sweet God. stuff yep yep <laughs> and then you'd go down the local park or the local bus stop or wherever you were hanging out that that night and um and drink it and, and that was just considered normal and I can remember what I loved about alcohol back in those younger years Amber was that as someone who had always been the new girl, always wanted to fit in, I craved connection. And alcohol was like a fast track way of feeling close to people. Because of course, you know, after a bottle of wine with someone, you're my best friend, I love you. And, and young Sarah, she craved that. That was all she wanted after being the new girl all the time and feeling like she was always on the edge of the friendship groups. And so for me, I quickly realized that alcohol was a very fast track way to feel accepted, to feel connected, to feel loved and to feel part of a group. And so alcohol then became the way that for the rest of my life, up until I stopped, was the way that I discovered was how to make friends, how to develop a close friendship, how to get what I thought was a deeper connection was to just get drunk with people. And so through my teens, through my early 20s, it was just always focused on alcohol. I moved to London. I got a job in recruitment in my when I was 21. And I 
clear as day remember that the, the fourth stage of the interview process was going to a local wine bar in London to do shots of Sambuca to see how well you could hold your booze as to whether oh, or not great. you got That's the job. Oh, great. That's part of the culture. Awesome. <laughs> so it's needless to say, I passed with flying colours. Um, I was, I think, offered the job on the spot because I was still standing after seven shots of Sambuca or whatever it was. And so it was, again, just constantly there. Alcohol was a part of my life in London in your early 20s, single. You know, you're going out at the time. There was always someone going to the pub on a Monday, on a Wednesday, on a Sunday. It kind of didn't matter. But my drinking wasn't really problematic then. It was, I drank a lot, but I didn't drink on my own. I didn't drink at home. I was just a social butterfly, I thought. I played hard and I worked hard. And that was the culture back then. If you think of it, it was sex in the city. It was, we had all these role models. I think we're a similar age. So I'm totally feeling, and I lived in London in my 20s too. And like you say, you could go to the pub on a Monday night. It wasn't just a Friday night's thing. It was whenever there's always someone, or even lunchtime we used to go as journalists. So that was kind of part of that culture too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and of course, in London, no one drives anywhere because no. everyone's on the tube. So there's never not someone who wants to go to the pub with you. So um, it just fed that kind of, again, it reinforced for me that you needed alcohol to have a good time. You needed alcohol to socialize. You needed alcohol to create connections. And it just wasn't problematic for me. Like I wore my drinking ability like a badge of honor like I can drink as much as the boys I you know I don't get hangovers I can stay out till 1am and get up at six and do a full day's work and back it up the next night like that was something that was so celebrated in the culture that I was living at the time and 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 honestly looking back then there was nothing that happened that was negative about any of that but what for me was the turning point was we made the decision um, I'd met my husband we got married it had taken a long time to fall pregnant because as it turns out that partying hard working hard never giving your nervous system a rest is not conducive to growing a baby and so through two years of trying and trying to get pregnant nobody said to me how much are you drinking and then I finally got not even a medical professional you no. know when you do those sort of conversations about what's your lifestyle and all those sorts no. of things oh no. interesting I remember I was having acupuncture and my acupuncturist said oh, to yeah. me because I was trying to um, conceive and he said to me oh you might need to cut back on the booze a little bit and I just remember being a bit like oh yeah yeah whatever what do you know just stick your needles in and, and get on with it and I was so blase and flippant about it and anyway we got pregnant and, and I just didn't even think about drinking like it didn't feature for me in any way whatsoever and I thought that's it now I'm a proper grown-up everything will be okay I won't go back to drinking the levels that I have been and I clear as day Amber remember when my son was eight weeks old it was my birthday and we went to the pub and I don't remember leaving um I got so drunk and of course I couldn't breastfeed and so the next day the way that I felt emotionally I, I was disgusted with myself I was like you have what what are you doing why would you go and write yourself up like that you're a mother now Sarah and I think that was the first time that I kind of thought well what is my relationship with alcohol like why did I go so far that time and anyway we then made the decision to move to Australia I fell pregnant again very very quickly and so we were suddenly in Perth with two young children under two no friends, no family, no support. My, I had had a very high flying career by this point in London, of, you know, whining and dining and weekends in New York and Saint-Tropez. And, and suddenly I was at home with two babies, with no friends, with cleaning up baby sick, going to music rhyme time. And I felt so lost. I felt so mm. confused. I felt so homesick. 
I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what my identity was anymore because I wasn't Sarah, the recruitment director that loved her Jimmy Choo's and her Louis Vuitton handbags. I was just at home with no friends and no one to see and no one to go out with and cleaning baby nappies. And and I just didn't like myself. I didn't know who I was. And, and I just started drinking because I didn't know what to do. So you would drink on your own, just to sort of dive into that sort of scenario. You've gone from being the social party girl drinker to someone who might drink at home by themselves or have friends over. Like I remember when I had children, you know, my oldest is 14 now, and mum's bringing a bottle of wine, like new mums coming over for, you know, that, you know, let's go for a walk with the kids. And then we'd take wine in in like sippy cups almost for ourselves as daytime drinking. Like I remember that being a thing 14 years ago. Absolutely. To cope, mummy's little mother's little helper or whatever they used to call it, you know. But but at this point, I didn't really have any friends, so I didn't have anyone to do that with. So I was just drinking on my own. I would never drink on my own with the kids. I would literally wait for my husband to come home from work. I can clearest day remember standing on the edge of the driveway one day. So more rules. rules. There's some rules there. I I wasn't allowed to drink when I was on my own with the kids. I could drink if with someone else if they were drinking and I was with the kids, but not just me and the kids, unless they were in bed and it was after seven o'clock. So constant rules, constant negotiation in my head about how I could and couldn't drink. My husband would pull into the driveway and I would literally be standing there with tears streaming down my face with a baby, with a toddler, and he would pull in after a full day's work and I would just hand him the kids and I would go inside, I would get my wine, I would go and sit out by the swimming pool and I would just drink and I would smoke and I would just want to get to the bottom of the bottle as quickly as possible to stop feeling the way that I was feeling because I didn't know how to process how I was feeling I hadn't felt this way before ever in my life and perhaps there was a bit of postnatal depression there like I, I maybe maybe not like I think it was a combination of feeling so lost, being so homesick as someone who craved connection. I didn't have like a friendship group. And and, and the women that I did meet, they were very different to me because, you know, going back to what I said before, I didn't know how to make friends without it being around alcohol. So I'd go to mum's... Without the social yeah. lubricant. So yeah, I'd go to mum's and mum's groups and be like, oh, does anyone want to, you know, get rid of the kids tonight and let's go out for a wine? And they'd all be looking at me like, who's this English girl that just wants to get drunk all the time? And so, yeah, that didn't go yeah. down too well. And so what made you stop? What was that point? It, it was a, a slow, gradual buildup of there being many little moments of going, that was not your best moment, Sarah. That is not who you want to be. My anxiety had got really bad. I'd got to the point where I couldn't sleep through the night because alcohol was... Yeah, sleep's was, a big one yeah. I think, for people. So yeah. I was taking a sleeping tablet every night after a bottle or two of wine so that I didn't wake up. The mornings must have been interesting. Oh, it was hideous. (laughs) But I still would get up, get the kids dressed, get them sorted and go to the gym because I was always like, if I can go to the gym, I'm not an alcoholic because alcoholics cannot go to the gym with a hangover. And so, again, rules that I would say to myself that would make me justify my drinking. At one point, I'd gone to my GP and I said to her, I I can't carry on, I'm I'm a mess. And at no point did she say to me, what's your drinking like? And yet she happily gave me a script for anti-anxiety meds. Yeah, wow. That's that's crazy, isn't it? When you think about the combination of that long term and mental health and all that stuff. So I guess what worked for you may not work for others. You know, have you done some research into the different types of alcohol dependency? And I reckon there's a sliding scale within that. But, you know, the work you do now, you must see all types of drinkers and all types of people. So is there a 
you know, way to which you can categorise some of that so that that we can all understand where we fit into that mix in a yeah, way. Yeah, and, and I think that the, the two main types I see are people who drink to manage stress and to numb and to not feel and the people who drink because they're naturally very shy and introvert and it gives them social confidence in group settings. So those are two of the main groups that I see. I ran a poll. I've got a group of 14,000 women and I ran a poll and said, why do you or did you drink? And Amber, the most overwhelming response was to escape. Yeah. But why? But maybe not, maybe not surprising for people you know particularly if you're a bit older and when when you drink like you say when you drink when you're a teenager you're doing it for for slightly different reasons and it's all new but the time you get to our age there's got to be different reasons and and the only demographic where the amount of alcohol consumption is going up instead of down is middle-aged women yes I know I know the younger generation don't drink don't binge drink generally speaking, no. as much as our generation no. did. And I work with, like, everyone says to me, oh, how much were you drinking? Because they want a number and they want me to right, go. Right, because they feel like that's, that's the thing. The- so if it was three bottles a day, that's terrible. But if it was half a bottle, that's yeah. all right. Like, or, that's or if I said it yeah. was a bottle a night and they don't drink that much, they can go, phew, I don't have to stop then because I don't drink as much as that. And it's kind of like, it's not a number, it's a feeling. So it's about it's how's alcohol yeah. making you feel. And in the end, for me, it was robbing me of my self-worth, my confidence, my energy, my clarity, being the mum that I wanted to be, being the wife that I wanted to be. I was living half a life and I knew it. I knew in the end that that I couldn't carry on in that way. And so it's not about, oh, what's the number? When you reach this point, you must stop. It's just when you know in yourself that you're not showing up as the best version of you and, and something has to change. And did you go to rehab or something formal when you no. stopped? How did you get that support? So I stopped three times before I finally quit. The first time I did 100 days and it was completely on my own, April 2017. I intended to do 21 days and I was just like, oh my goodness, this is what it's like to wake up every day feeling positive and happy and energized and sleeping well. But I was really struggling with other people's perception of me not drinking and I kind of well, it's an identity thing, me. particularly if you've been a drinker. Like if you've never, I've got friends who've never drunken for whatever reason. They just don't like it, or they never culturally that's not something that's you know familiar to them. And no one questions it. But I think when you change something about yourself, that probably goes across the board to things like when you suddenly get really fit, or yeah. you know, if someone leaves their husband, or whatever. Whatever. Some people just they feel like it's a real reflection of something in them. I think as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so I'd gone back to drinking after the hundred days, thinking, okay. "Oh, this time I'll be able to moderate." Now I've done a hundred yes. days off. Now I'm fixed, and now I'll just be a normal drinker that has one or two every now and then. And within two weeks, I was back to drinking. How did that no, go? Two weeks. <laughs> two weeks. So the muscle memory of drinking was still there. It wasn't suddenly like, oh, well, now I've had half a glass and I'm satisfied. It never goes amber. And that's what I teach my ladies is I've got clients yeah. who've taken a break for three years and they've gone back to drinking and it just picked up exactly where they left off. Wow. That's amazing. So then you quit a second quit a time? second time and I did 100 days again and then I just was going on a UK holiday to see lots and lots of people that I hadn't seen for a long time. And I made the decision to drink, thinking this time I'll be able to moderate. This Fun time. Is yeah, back. exactly. <laughs> and then I just was like, do you know what? The best version of me is the version of me that doesn't drink. So why do I keep going back to it? 
the best, you know, I am the yeah. mum I want to be. I'm the wife I want to be. I love myself so much more. I have more confidence and more energy. So I set the date and I set the date in early March and I set the date for the end of April because um, I was going to a friend's 40th and I thought I'm going out with a bang. I'm going to go to this 40th. I'm going to have a huge night. And then that's it. I'm, I'm, that's, that's me done. And I went to that 40th and I had two drinks and went home. I think I was just so ready. Wow. I was so, so ready. So that was yep. it, 27th of April, 2019, my last drink. I love it. So you advocate for women, especially those over 40, which we've touched on in our conversation today through your programs and coaching. What makes that demographic different when it comes to alcohol use and stopping drinking? And I guess you've got lived experience, so I get why that's your niche. But is there something interestingly homogenous about us in this stage of life? A couple of things, actually. Great question. So the first is, after our late 30s, we stop producing as much progesterone. And progesterone is the hormone that is like the body's natural valium that makes us feel calm and have less anxiety. So because we're producing less of it, when we go into our 40s, we naturally start to feel more stressed, we produce more cortisol, and we feel more anxious. And we don't have the body's own natural ability to, 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 to calm that down. And alcohol works on the GABA receptors in the brain. It causes a huge surge of GABA, which is the neurotransmitter that makes us feel calm and relaxed. And so we very quickly learn, oh, when I feel stressed and anxious and wound up, when I have a glass of wine, that makes all of that stop. And in that moment, we just talk about the 15 minutes after having that first drink, alcohol does exactly what we want it to do. Yeah. The, the problem is we build up tolerance so one ends up not being enough, and then we want more and more and more. Before we know it, we're having a bottle or two most nights. And number yeah, two, I always think the be- the first drink's the best drink. The first everything drink else is, the best is just drink. I don't know more, yeah. more of nothing to me. Like it's just more messy, more hangover, more calories, all the things. But yeah, yeah I always think we really love that first drink feeling. If you you know if you are a casual drinker, that's the thing you love. Yeah, and and I'm not anti-alcohol but I'm there to support people because there are certain people and there's a lot of us that really struggle to stick at one. What happens, we get so lit up by that dopamine reward center in the brain every time we have a drink that we become, we crave it. We want more of that. And so that progesterone, like, so the hormonal impact plays a massive part. And the second thing is like, I read something the other day that said there has never been a harder time to be a mother since the second world war than today. Mm. in terms of what we're juggling like aging parents raising kids we're still you know most of us are still working full-time as well as doing the lion's share of household duties the pressure to be cooking home-cooked meals to be going to the gym to still look good to meditate to make the book week outfit to do like the pressure (laughs) that we feel is immense yeah absolutely so what broader changes would you like to see happen so that that ingrained, and I'm putting in air quotes, drinking culture that we have, not just in you know Australia but lots of other countries as well, is made easier and more acceptable for us to then walk away from and maybe not drink regularly or at all if we choose to. It feels like you're sort of one woman doing all this amazing work but there's got to be a broader you know, societal shift in some ways which would help people feel more accepted and, I guess, supported as they're, you know, making these decisions. Absolutely. And look, it is starting to happen. It's very slow, but it is happening. Just even like the increase in alcohol-free drinks. You know, in the UK, I went back in July and I was amazed to see pretty much every restaurant and bar I went to had a huge selection 
of alcohol-free drinks. And that is slowly starting to happen over here in Australia. You're seeing... I'm just curious, what is your thought on those? I've got this idea that it's like a weird placebo and if I'm not having a drink, I don't have a... I don't have a, an alcohol-free beer. I just have a mineral water. Like I don't I don't know. I'm just kind of I've never been a smoker, but I imagine it's like going from the the cigarette to the to the patch or to the vape. I don't know if it's better. I mean, it's it's good, good to have options, but I couldn't personally I don't have an aptitude to want to have another option that looks like alcohol and tastes like alcohol. Yeah, I think the thing is you've got to remember that there's not what else do you drink if you when you don't drink alcohol and you don't <laughs> well, drink you can water. Only, you sit on that mineral water all night because you're not going to have five mineral waters unless you're going to go yeah. to the bathroom every two minutes that's the other thing that's different about when you're used to drinking you're not yeah. going to keep ordering millions of no. you know expensive mocktails it's just no. not going to happen but I don't want a sugary drink like I no. don't want a soft drink I drink my coffee in the morning but sometimes when I'm out at night, like I'm, you've got to remember, I'm coming up to four years sober. I want to have yeah. something else to drink other than just lemon water when I go yeah. out Yeah, and I think it's and, good. I just wonder yeah. if it's just another kind of – I'd be interested if similar to vaping, whether, you know, some, the vaping, which is the tobacco industry, are all behind, for example. And I know it's not the same, but it's whether, you know, it's just another marketing thing and, and it's good. But then whether that could then make people go, well, today I'll have – one beer with alcohol and one without because no one's going to know. Like I, I just don't know if the accountability piece is the same when you're not Look, I've got drinking. hundreds of clients who've got sober through using alcohol-free drinks. And, and I always say keep the ritual, change the ingredient. So if yeah, you have, okay. love having a lovely drink in the evening when you get home from work, pour yourself a lovely drink. There is, the difference with vaping is it's still hugely damaging to the body. Oh, it's terrible. Whereas Absolutely. an alcohol-free drink has the taste of a lovely French champagne without the alcohol content. So you're yeah. still getting a lovely tasting drink, which isn't water or Coca-Cola or whatever. Um, yeah, soft drinks, yeah. But, yeah. So I don't drink them that often, but I definitely, if I'm out, like I, because you get so many questions. I was at a dinner party and someone said to me, I'll, I'll pour you up a wine, I'll pour you a glass of wine. And I said, no, thanks, I don't drink. She's never met me before. And she looked at me and she went, why are you an alcoholic? Like, you should say yes and shut them up. I, I don't know. know. Like, I know. Jeez. Um, so I don't drink alcohol-free drinks very often, but if I'm going to a barbecue, yeah. if I'm going to a party, yeah, I it's love good to, have to that. take something that just isn't yeah. water. So, so things like that are starting to change, and there are more and more people out loud sharing the positive messages of sobriety because I thought a life without alcohol was a prison sentence. I thought it was saying goodbye to fun, goodbye to connection, goodbye to having a good time. And if anything, it's been the exact opposite. The fun, the connection and the fulfillingness of my life has just increased so much since removing alcohol. What would you say the hardest thing about giving up alcohol has been and why? Because I love all these positives, but is there something that you still remember as being, this is really hard? Was it the socialising? Was it the rituals? What was the thing? It's having to sit with your emotions for the first time. Yeah, there's no numbing. You can't escape them. And so having to sit with feelings that you have numbed for 20 or 30 years is so hard at the start. Like they say in the alcohol world that when you remove alcohol, you regress to being the age, the emotional age that you were when you started drinking. So you've got so much emotional growing up to do to, to be able to learn new ways to process and sit with your emotions instead of just immediately numbing them. What's the best advice you've ever been given and why? And, of course, it doesn't have to be related to alcohol. It could be life advice, business advice. Is it something that really stands out for you? I remember this at the very start of my journey, someone said to me, I wish you a slow recovery 
And I was like, what do they mean? I am such a type A person. I want to do everything as fast and as quickly and yeah. everything as possible. And, and they just said to me, the slower you go with this, the more it's going to stick. And it's just about remembering that you don't have to change everything immediately. You can just go slow. You can be present. And slowly but surely, you start peeling back those layers to start to get to meet your authentic self. And that doesn't happen overnight. And so for someone who's such a fast person with everything I do, just knowing that it wasn't a race to get to meet my future sober, authentic self. It was an unfolding and a journey. And and I will never get to the end of it, but I'm having so much fun going on the journey and, and discovering things about myself that I was so oblivious to when I was drinking. If we spoke again in a year's time, what would be your number one goal to have achieved and why? So my goal, Amber, is to get into schools and to start to talk to both parents and kids about alcohol, not in a preachy way, but just to start to explain the fact that alcohol causes anxiety, the fact that alcohol shuts down the prefrontal cortex of your brain so you don't have rational thinking, the fact that for anyone who starts drinking under the age of 16, they have a four times increased likelihood of developing alcohol use disorder. Like to be able to start sharing information that was never available to me or my parents is something I'm so passionate about. A final takeaway message for us today as we wrap up on the politics of sobriety. The goal is not to be sober. The goal is to love yourself so much you don't need to drink. Oh, I love that. That should be a bumper sticker, Sarah. I know, right? (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. And if you do want to connect further with Sarah and find out more about what she does, please contact her through the show notes. Until next time, take care. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.